Section 28 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 9, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary Beatrice of Modena, Chapter 8, Part 2. Among the papers at the Hotel de Subis are letters from various ecclesiastics to the Queen's friend, La Mere Priolo, tracing the progress of their journey to the Baths of Bourbon, in which they made stages from one convent to another. The nature of this correspondence makes it overloaded with the details of Catholic observances, which afford little satisfaction to those interested in historical research. Here and there, however, are a few biographical notices. The queen was a little overpowered by the odor of the pastilles burnt at the high mass, but she told the writer, she was quite ashamed of this weakness, which had not thus affected her for a long time. The tender and devoted affection of Mary Beatrice for her unfortunate consort is simply and touchingly manifested in a letter which she addressed on the 20th of April to her friend, Madame Priolo, after they had accomplished their long weary journey to the Baths of Bourbon. The king was better, and her heart overflows with thankfulness to God, and an unwanted strain of cheerfulness pervades her paper. Bourbon, 20th of April. At last, my dear mother, she says we arrived at this place on the fourteenth day after our departure from saint-germain without any accident god be thanked the king is better he has a little gout which is now gone his hand and knee are gaining strength he eats and sleeps well and i hope that we shall bring him back in perfect health if god should grant us this mercy instead of complaining of the journey which i have assuredly found very long and uncomfortable I shall call it the most agreeable, and the happiest I have made in all my life. With regard to myself, too, I ought not to complain, for I am so well that I am astonished at it. Assist me, my dear mother, in rendering thanks to God for his mercy, in sustaining me in the various states in which it has pleased him to place me, and beseech him to grant me the grace to be more faithful and grateful to him." The British ambassador had accurate information, meantime, of the minutest particulars relating to the proceedings of Mary Beatrice and her suffering lord. In a dispatch dated April 20th, he says, The late king has the gout at Bourbon, so cannot drink the waters. Mary Beatrice, in her letter of the same date, mentions her visits to the nuns of Montargis and other religious communities, being aware that such matters would prove of greater interest to her friends at Chalot than details of the company whom she met at the Baths of Bourbon, or the business of the great world. I have been much pleased with our sisters of Montargis, and above all, with the good mother, with whom I appear to be well acquainted, from the love I bear to her sister, whom she much resembles. They have also a depose, who appears to have some merit. These of Nevers gave me your dear letter." There was such a crowd when I received it, that I was not able to look it over, as I could have wished, but the little I saw pleased me much. Our poor sisters of Moulin I have not seen, because we were taken by another road, at which I was much vexed, but if it please God, before I quit this place, I will go one day to see them express. Today they have sent their confessor to signify their chagrin at not having seen me." from an inedited letter of the superior in the archives a royaume de france it appears that mary beatrice and her consort visited that convent the day before the festival of the holy trinity 
the queen edified all the religieuse by the humility with which she followed the processions of that festival on foot without parasol squire or train-bearer with a taper in her hand the angelic modesty of her countenance made her the admiration of all beholders the king was unable to walk without the supporting arm of his faithful consort but he viewed the procession from a balcony we have had five queens here says the superior of moulin whom i remember very well but not one comparable to this every one is equally charmed and edified with her from this correspondence it appears that the waters and baths of bourbon freed king james's arm from the rheumatic gout and enabled him to walk and speak with less difficulty instances of amendment which prove how deeply he had been afflicted the personal attentions of the queen to her suffering husband are mentioned with admiration by the writers of the numerous packets of letters from which we have gleaned this intelligence such instances of humanity and affectionate duty can be appreciated by every one those who would turn away with disgust from the processions and trifling observances with which these letters are loaded can appreciate the fond wife and devoted nurse the effect of the waters of bourbon was so beneficial to king james that contrary to all expectation he was able to commence his journey to saint germain on the fourth of june the queen on her return from the baths of bourbon visited the convent of nuns in the town called la charite on the lorry she could not help as she told her ladies afterwards observing the extreme poverty of the nuns they told her that this was occasioned by robbers who often came and pillaged them of all that they possessed but of late they had kept a rifle always loaded in order to fire if the bandits came which indeed the queen added that she had noticed and had remarked to herself that it was strange to see such a weapon in a cell of nuns it does not appear whether the poor ladies ever fired the rifle perhaps it was merely hung up in terrorem the queen writes from montargis the following cheering account of king james's health we are now within three days journey of paris in good health thank god the king gains strength every day and they assure us that after a few days of rest he will find himself much better than he has yet done he has a very good appearance he eats well and sleeps very well he walks much better and has begun to write it is a great change for the better i am persuaded that the prayers of chalot and of almost all of our holy institutions have contributed more to it than the waters god be praised for it forever the queen in her postscript adds i must not forget to tell you that it will be impossible to stop at chalot at all for the tuesday the last day of our journey we have arranged to go straight by desson to saint germain having as you may believe some impatience to embrace my dear children during her anxious attendance on her sick consort at bourbon mary beatrice from time to time sent messengers to saint germain to inquire after the health and welfare of her children who remained there under the care of the duke of perth and the countess of middleton very constant and dutiful had the prince and his little sister been in their correspondence with their royal parents at this period of unwanted separation a packet of their simple little letters to the queen is still preserved among more important documents of the exiled stuarts in the archives al royaume de france in paris 
containing interesting evidence of the strong ties of natural affection by which the hearts of this unfortunate family were entwined together mary beatrice and james arrived at saint germain in time for the celebration of the birthday fetes of their son and daughter the prince completed his thirteenth year on the tenth of june and the princess her ninth on the twenty eighth of the same month visits of congratulation were paid by the king of france and all the members of the royal family to the king and queen on their return from bourbon though louis the fourteenth had been compelled to recognize william the third as king of great britain he continued to treat the deposed king and queen with the same punctilious attention to all the ceremonials of state as if they had retained their regality when the young duke of anjou his grandson was declared king of spain he sent his first equerry to announce the fact to them and he treated the new monarch precisely with the same honors as he did king james taking care to avoid the slightest misunderstanding by never allowing them to meet in his presence as he considered each entitled to the honor of a fautil on his right hand which it was impossible both could have at the same time the young king of spain visited james and his queen at saint germain and they returned his visits at versailles the improvement in the health of her beloved consort during their late visit at bourbon which had filled the heart of mary beatrice with false hopes of his ultimate recovery was but of a temporary duration the british ambassador who kept through his spies at saint germain a close watch on the symptoms of his deposed sovereign gives the following account of his state in a dispatch dated june fifteenth king james is so decayed in his senses that he takes care of nothing all things going direct to the queen they were both yesterday at versailles to wait on the king but they did not come till after five so that i was gone the decay of king james's senses of which his former liegeman speaks was a failure of his physical powers which had as before noticed been brought too early into action edward the black prince john of gaunt henry the fourth and henry the seventh men of far greater natural talents than james the second all died in a pitiable state of mental atrophy prematurely worn out the victims of their precocious exertions in addition to this cause james had been heavily visited in the last fourteen years of his life with a burden of sorrow such as few princes have been doomed to bear calumniated betrayed and driven from his throne into exile and poverty by his beloved and fondly cherished daughters the heart of the modern lyre of british history had of course been wrung with pangs no less bitter than those which that great master of the human heart shakespeare has portrayed goading the outraged king and father to madness but james bore his wrongs with the patience of a christian and instead of raving of foul unnatural hags and invoking the vengeance of heaven on one or both of them like the hero of the tragedy he besought daily of god to pardon them he was encouraged in his placable feelings by his consort for mary beatrice deeply as she had been injured by her stepdaughters and their husbands never spoke an angry word of either but was accustomed to check her ladies if they began to inveigh against them as we cannot speak of them with praise she would say we will not make them a subject of discourse since it only causes irritation and gives rise to feelings that cannot be pleasing to god let us rather look closely to ourselves and endeavor to avoid those faults which we see in others although a few fond superstitions 
the result of education and association with her conventual friends, now and then peep out in the letters of Mary Beatrice, the fervency and depth of her piety and love of God, her patience and resignation under all her trials and afflictions, and her charitable forbearance from reviling those who had so cruelly injured and calumniated her, prove her to be a sincere Christian. In one of her letters to her friend, Angelique Priolo, she says that she supplicates the God of all consolation to fill her heart with his holy love, and then to do what he would with her. For I believe, continues she, that a heart full of divine love is at peace and content in every kind of state and cannot be otherwise than well. This is the only thing I would pray you ask for me, my dear mother. It is the sole thing needful without which one cannot be happy, either in this world or in the other, and with which all that the world calls misfortunes and disgrace cannot render one miserable. I believe this as firmly as if I had experienced it myself, although in truth, I have never felt an approach to it, for instead of doing all for love, I do all perforce. God knows it, and you may comprehend it well, and therefore I am sure, my dear mother, that you will pity me and pray for me. King James's sands of life were now ebbing fast. The Earl of Manchester, in a dispatch dated July 13th, says, the late king was taken with another fit of apoplexy, and it was thought he would not have lived half an hour. His eyes were fixed, and I heard yesterday he was ill again. He is so ill decayed that by every post you may expect to hear of his death. The skill of Fagon, who remained in constant attendance, and the tender care of his conjugal nurse, assisted the naturally strong constitution of James to make a second rally. He crept out once more on fine sunny days, in the parterre, supported by the arm of his royal helpmate, accompanied by their children, and attended by the faithful adherents who formed their little court. Sometimes his majesty felt strong enough to extend his walk as far as the terrace of Saint-Germain, which, with its forest background and rich prospect over the valley of the Seine, bore a tantalizing resemblance to the unforgotten scenery of Richmond Hill and the Thames, with the heights of Windsor in the distance. The eyes of Mary Beatrice were at times, perhaps suffused with unbidden tears, at the remembrances they recalled. But the thoughts, the hopes, the desires of the dying king, her husband, were fixed on brighter realms. He who had learned to thank God for having deprived him of three crowns, that he might lead him through the chastening paths of sorrow to a heavenly inheritance, regarded the kingdoms of this world and their glories, with the eye of one who stands on the narrow verge between time and eternity. The terrace of Saint-Germain was a public promenade, and many of the English who visited France after the Peace of Ryswick incurred the risk of being treated as Jacobites on their return home by resorting thither. Some, doubtless, sought that prohibited spot to gratify a sort of lingering affection for James and his queen, which they dared not acknowledge even to themselves, but the greater number came for the indulgence of their idle curiosity to see the exiled court. Few even of the latter class, however, except the hireling spies of the Dutch cabinet, who were always loitering in the crowd, could behold without feelings allied to sympathy the wasted form of him who had been their king, bowed earthward with sorrow rather than with years, his feeble steps supported by his pale anxious consort, their once beautiful queen, her eyes bent with fond solicitude on his face, 
or turned with appealing glances from him to any of their former subjects whom she recognized and then with mute eloquence directing their attention to her son it was not every one who could resist her silent pleading and it is noticed by lord manchester that the hopes of the jacobites of saint germain of the restoration of the royal family were never more sanguine than at that period when everything in the shape of business was transacted by the queen the tender solicitude of mary beatrice for her children led her to bestow much of her personal attention on them when they were ill on one occasion when they were both confined to their chambers with severe colds she describes herself as going from one to the other all day long the early deaths of her three elder children rendered her naturally apprehensive lest these beloved ones should also be snatched away yet her maternal hopes were so confidently fixed on her son that one day when he was so seriously ill that apprehensions were entertained for his life she said god who has given him to me will i hope preserve him to me i doubt not that he will rule one day on the throne of his fathers god can never permit the legitimate line of princes to fail it was the personal influence of the woman a queen now only in name that gave vitality to the stuart cause at a time when every passing day brought king james nearer to the verge of the tomb it was her impassioned pleading that enlisting the dauphin and his generous son the duke of burgundy and madame de maintenon on her side obtained from louis the fourteenth the solemn promise of recognizing her son's claim to the style and title of king of england when his father should be no more king james continued to linger through the summer and was occasionally strong enough to mount his horse mary beatrice began to flatter herself with hopes of his recovery and weary as he was of the turmoil of the world there were yet strong ties to bind him to an existence that was endeared by the affection of a partner who crushed as she was with sorrow sickness and infirmity continued after a union of nearly eight and twenty years to love him with the same passionate fondness as in the first years of their marriage it was hard to part with her and their children the lovely promising and dutiful children of his old age whom nature had apparently so well qualified to adorn that station of which his rash and ill-advised proceedings had been the means of depriving them a political crisis of great importance appeared to be at hand the days of his rival william the third were numbered as well as his own both were laboring under incurable maladies the race of life even then was closely matched between them and if james ever desired a lengthened existence it was that for the sake of his son he might survive william fancying fond delusion that his daughter anne would not dare to contest the throne with him the clear-sighted diplomatist who represented william at the court of france feeling the importance of a close attention to the chances in a game that was arriving at so nice a point kept too keen a watch on the waning light of his old master's lamp of life to be deceived by its occasional flashes in his dispatch of the thirty first of august seventeen o one he says the late king hopes still to go to fontainebleau but i know this court will prevent it because he might very likely die there which would be inconvenient the event alluded to in these humane terms appears to have been hastened by a reoccurrence of the same incident which caused king james's first severe stroke of apoplexy in the preceding spring on friday september second while he was at mass in the chapel royal the choir unfortunately sung the fatal anthem again lord remember what is come upon us consider and behold our reproach 
etc. The same agonizing chord was touched, as on the former occasion, with a similar effect. He sank into the arms of the queen in a swoon, and was carried from the chapel into his chamber in a state of insensibility. After a time, suspended animation was restored, but the fit returned upon him with greater violence. A most afflicting sight, says the continuator of his memoirs, for his most disconsolate queen, into whose arms he fell the second time. Mary Beatrice had acquired sufficient firmness in the path of duty to be able to control her own agonies on this occasion, for the sake of the beloved object of her solicitude. She had inherited from her mother the qualifications of a skillful nurse, and her queenly rank had never elevated her above the practical duties of the conjugal character. She could not deceive herself as to the mournful truth which the looks of all around her proclaimed, and her own sad heart assured her that the dreaded moment of separation between them was at hand. Contrary, however, to all expectation, nature made another rally. Her husband recovered from his long death-like swoon, and all the following day appeared better. But he, looking death steadily in the face, sent for his confessor on the Sunday morning, and had just finished his general confession, when he was seized with another fit, which lasted so long that everyone believed him to be dead. His teeth being forced open, a frightful hemorrhage of blood took place, a reoccurrence for the third time, only in a more aggravated form, of the symptoms of sanguineous apoplexy, with which he was threatened, when with the army at Salisbury, and which so effectually fought the battles of his foes against him, by precluding him from the possibility of either bodily or mental exertion. The distress and terror of the queen nearly overpowered her on this occasion, but she struggled with the weakness of her sex, and refused to leave her suffering husband in his extremity. James himself was calm and composed, and as soon as the hemorrhage could be stopped, expressed a wish to receive the last rites of his church, but said he would see his children first, and sent for his son. The young prince, when he entered the chamber, and saw the pale, death-like countenance of his father, and the bed all covered with blood, gave way to a passionate burst of grief, in which everyone else joined, except the dying king, who appeared perfectly serene. When the prince approached the bed, he extended his arms to embrace him, and addressed his last admonition to him in these impressive words, which, notwithstanding the weakness and exhaustion of sinking nature, were uttered with a fervor and a solemnity that astonished everyone. I am now leaving this world, which has been to me a sea of storms and tempests, it being God Almighty's will to wean me from it by many great afflictions. Serve him with all your power, and never put the crown of England in competition with your eternal salvation. There is no slavery like sin, nor no liberty like his service. If his holy providence shall think fit to seat you on the throne of your royal ancestors, govern your people with justice and clemency, Remember, kings are not made for themselves, but for the good of the people. Set before their eyes, in your own actions, a pattern of all manner of virtues. Consider them as your children. You are the child of vows and prayers. Behave yourself accordingly. Honor your mother, that your days may be long, and be always a kind brother to your dear sister, that you may reap the blessings of concord and unity. Those who were about the king, apprehending that the excitement of continuing to speak long and earnestly, on subjects of so agitating a nature, would be too much for his exhausted frame, suggested that the prince had better now withdraw, 
at which his majesty was troubled and said do not take my son away from me till i have given him my blessing at least the little princess louisa was brought to the bedside of her dying father bathed in tears to receive in her turn all that heaven had left in the power of the unfortunate james to bestow on his children by mary beatrice his paternal benediction and advice it was perhaps a harder trial for james to part with this daughter than with his son she was the child of his old age the joy of his dark and wintry years he had named her la consolatrice when he first looked upon her and she had even when in her nurse's arms manifested an extraordinary affection for him she was one of the most beautiful children in the world and her abilities were of a much higher order than those of her brother reflective and intelligent beyond her tender years her passionate sorrow showed how deeply she was touched by the sad state in which she saw her royal father and that she comprehended only too well the calamity that impended over her adieu my dear child said james after he had embraced and blessed her adieu serve your creator in the days of your youth consider virtue as the greatest ornament of your sex follow close the steps of that great pattern of it your mother who has been no less than myself overclouded with calumnies but time the mother of truth will i hope at last make her virtue shine as bright as the sun this noble tribute of the dying consort of mary beatrice to her moral worth doubly affecting from the circumstances under which it was spoken is the more interesting because the prediction it contained is fulfilled by the discovery and publication of documents verifying the integrity of her life and actions and exposing the baseness of the motives which animated the hireling scribblers of a party to calumniate her the observation of human life as well as the research of those writers who taking nothing on trust are at the trouble of first searching out and then investigating evidences will generally prove that railing accusations are rather indicative of the baseness of the person who made them than of want of worth in those against whom they are brought james did not confine his deathbed advice to his children he exhorted his servants and friends to forsake sin and lead holy and christian lives and tried to persuade his principal minister of state the earl of middleton to embrace the doctrines of the church of rome after he had received the last sacraments of that church from the cure of saint germain he told him that he wished to be buried privately in his parish church with no other monumental inscription than these words here lies james king of great britain he declared himself in perfect charity with all the world and lest his declaration that he forgave all his enemies from the bottom of his heart should be considered too general he named his son-in-law the prince of orange and the princess anne of denmark his daughter all this while the poor queen who had never quitted him for a moment being unable to support herself had sunk down upon the ground by his bedside in much greater anguish than he and with almost as little signs of life james was sensibly touched to see her in such excessive grief and seemed to suffer more on that account than any other he tried all he could to comfort her and to persuade her to resign herself to the will of god in this as in all her other trials but none had appeared to mary beatrice so hard as this and she remained inconsolable till a visible improvement taking place in the king's symptoms she began to flatter herself that his case was not desperate james passed a better night and the next day louis the fourteenth came to visit him 
he would not suffer his coach to drive into the court, lest the noise should disturb his dying kinsman, but alighted at the iron gates, the same as others. James received him with the same ease and composure, as though nothing extraordinary were the matter. Louis had a long private conference with Mary Beatrice, for whom he testified the greatest sympathy and consideration. On the following Sunday, His Majesty of France paid a second visit, and the whole of that day, the chamber of King James was thronged with a succession of visitors of distinction, who came to harass him and the Queen, with complimentary marks of attention on this occasion. No wonder that he sank in a state of exhaustion on the following day, that his fever returned, and all hopes of his recovery vanished. When this last fatal change appeared, the queen, who was as usual by his bedside, gave way to an irrepressible burst of anguish. This distressed the king, who said to her, Do not afflict yourself. I am going. I hope to be happy. I doubt it not, she replied. It is not for your condition I lament, but for my own. And then her grief overpowering her, she appeared ready to faint away, which he perceiving, entreated her to retire, and bade those who were near him lead her to her chamber. The sight of her grief was the only thing that shook the firmness with which he was passing through the dark valley of the shadow of death. As soon as the queen had withdrawn, James requested that the prayers for a departing soul should be read to him and for him, in which he joined with unaffected devotion. Meantime, Mary Beatrice, having recovered herself a little, was only prevented by the injunctions of her spiritual director, and the consciousness that, worn out as she was by grief and watching, she would be unable to command her feelings from returning to her wonted station by the pillow of her dying lord. But though she was not permitted to be present visibly, she came softly round by the back stairs, and knelt unseen, in a closet, behind the alcove of the bed, where she could hear every word and every sigh that was uttered by that dear object of her love, which for upwards of seven and twenty years had been the absorbing principle of her existence. In that unsuspected retreat, Mary Beatrice remained for several hours, listening with breathless anxiety to every sound and every motion in the alcove. If she heard the king cough or groan, her heart was pierced at the thought of his sufferings, and that she was no longer permitted to support and soothe him, and if all were silent, she dreaded that he had ceased to breathe. James sunk into a sort of lethargy, giving for several days little consciousness of life, except when prayers were read to him, when by the expression of his countenance and the motion of his lips, it was plain that he prayed also. Meantime, the momentous question of what should be done with regard to acknowledging the claims of the youthful son of James the Second and Mary Beatrice, to the title of King of Great Britain, after the decease of the deposed monarch, was warmly debated in the cabinet council of Louis the Fourteenth. All but seven were opposed to a step in direct violation to the Treaty of Ryswick, and which must have the effect of involving France in a war for which she was ill-prepared. Louis the Fourteenth, who had committed himself by the hopes he had given to Mary Beatrice, listened in perturbed silence to the objections of his council, in which his reason acquiesced, but the Dauphin, being the last to speak, gave a strong proof of the friendship, which in his quiet way he cherished for the parents of the disinherited heir of England, for rising in some warmth, he said, It would be unworthy of the crown of France to abandon a prince of their own blood, especially one who was so near and dear to them as the son of King James, that he was for his part 
resolved to hazard not only his life, but all that was dear to him for his restoration. Then the king of France said, I am of Monsieur's opinion. And so said the Duke of Burgundy and all the princes of the blood. The following interesting particulars connected with this determination of Louis the Fourteenth were narrated by Mary Beatrice herself and must be related in her own words. It was, said she, a miraculous interposition in which, with a heart penetrated with a grateful sense of his goodness to us, I recognize the hand of the Most High, who was pleased to raise up for us a protector in his own good time, by disposing the heart of the greatest of kings to take compassion on the widow and orphans of a king, whom it had pleased God to cover with afflictions here below. We can never cease to acknowledge the obligations that we owe to the king, for not only has he done all that he could for us, but he did it in a manner so heroic and touching, that even our enemies cannot help admiring him for it. He came twice to see my good king during his illness, and said and did everything with which generous feeling could inspire a noble heart for the illustrious sufferer. He could not refrain from shedding tears more than once on seeing the danger of his friend. He spared neither care nor pains to procure every solace and every assistance that was considered likely to arrest the progress of the malady. At last, on the Tuesday after the king had received the viaticum for the second time, and they had no longer any hopes of him, this kind protector did me the honor of writing with his own hand a note to me, to let me know that he was coming to Saint-Germain, to tell me something that would console me. He then came to me in my chamber, where he declared to me, with a thousand marks of friendship, the most consolatory that could be, under the circumstances, that after due reflection, he had determined to recognize the Prince of Wales, my son, for the heir of the three kingdoms of Great Britain, whensoever it should please God to remove the king, and that he would then render the same honors to him as he had done to the king his father. I had previously implored this great monarch, in the presence of the king my husband, to continue the honor of his protection to my children and me, and entreated him to be to us in the place of a father. I made him all the acknowledgments in my power, and he told me that, I could impart these tidings to the king my husband, when and how I thought best. I entreated him to be the bearer of them himself. Louis, being desirous of doing everything that was likely to alleviate her affliction, proceeded with her to King James's chamber. Life was so far spent with that prince, that he was not aware of the entrance of his august visitor, and when Louis inquired after his health, he made no answer, for he neither saw nor heard him. When one of his attendants roused him from the drowsy stupor in which he lay, to tell him that the king of France was there, he unclosed his eyes with a painful effort and said, Where is he? Sir, replied Louis, I am here, and am come to see how you are. I am going, said James quietly, to pay that debt which must be paid by all kings, as well as by their meanest subjects. I give your majesty my dying thanks for all your kindnesses to me and my afflicted family, and do not doubt of their continuance, having always found you good and generous. He also expressed his grateful sense of the attention he had been shown during his sickness. Louis replied, that it was a small matter indeed, but he had something to acquaint him with of more importance, on which the attendants of both kings began to retire. 
Let nobody withdraw, exclaimed Louis. Then turning again to James, he said, I am come, sir, to acquaint you that whenever it shall please God to call your majesty out of this world, I will take your family under my protection, and will recognize your son, the Prince of Wales, as the heir of your three realms. At these words, all present, both English and French, threw themselves at the feet of the powerful monarch, who was at that time the sole reliance of the destitute and sorrowful court at Saint-Germain. It was, perhaps, the proudest, as well as the happiest moment of Louis XIV's life, that he had dared to act in compliance with the dictates of his own heart, rather than with the advice of his more politic counsel. The scene was so moving that Louis himself could not refrain from mingling his tears with those which were shed by those around him. James feebly extended his arms to embrace his royal friend, and strove to speak, but the confused noise prevented his voice from being heard beyond these words. I thank God I die with a perfect resignation, and forgive all the world, particularly the Emperor and the Prince of Orange. He might have added, the Empress Eleanor Magdalene of Newburgh, whose personal pique at the preference which his matrimonial ambassador, the Earl of Peterborough, had shown for the beautiful Mary Beatrice of Modena, eight and twenty years before, although the means of elevating her to the greatest throne in Europe, was one of the unsuspected causes of the ill offices James, and afterwards his widow and son, experienced from that quarter. James begged, as a last favor, that no funeral pomp might be used at his obsequies. Louis replied, that this was the only favor that he could not grant. The dying king begged, that he would rather employ any money that he felt disposed to expend for that purpose, for the relief of his destitute followers. These he pathetically recommended to his compassionate care, with no less earnestness than he had done Mary Beatrice and her children. Having relieved his mind by making these requests, he begged his majesty not to remain any longer in so melancholy a place. The queen having meantime sent for the prince her son, brought him herself through the little bedchamber into that of his dying father, that he might return his thanks to his royal protector. The young prince threw himself at Louis's feet, and embracing his knees, expressed his grateful sense of his majesty's goodness. Louis raised and tenderly embraced him, promised to act the part of a parent to him. As this scene excited too much emotion in the sick, says the queen, we passed all three into my chamber, where the king of France talked to the young prince, my son. I wish much I could recollect the words, for never was any exhortation more instructive, more impressive, or fuller of wisdom and kindness. End of section 28